welcome to Body Truth, a podcast that explores the relationship that we have with our body, food, and life told through a storytelling lens. I'm your host, Caitlin Parsons. I'm a certified intuitive eating and body image coach committed to changing the cultural narrative around how we take up space. Each week, you'll hear from thought leaders who are ready to dismantle shame through sharing vulnerably. We'll discuss everything from individual body image stories to challenging cultural messages, reshaping beliefs, practical support tools, and more. We'll laugh, we'll cry, we'll heal. Let's take the next step towards embodying our truth together. Hello. I never know how to start out these intros, um, <laughs> but I'm always really excited when I record these because you've probably heard me say this before. I always imagine that we're together and just cozying up, hanging out, ready to talk some truth, and just grateful that you're here today. Happy Thanksgiving week if you are in the United States and celebrating. Um, On that note, I have some thoughts that I want to share with you. And I would love to invite you to set an intention with me this week. Whether or not you celebrate Thanksgiving or you are just in a place in your life where you are going to be seeing family, friends, coworkers, people in general with the holidays coming up, I think the holidays are kind of just a, I think they are a worldwide um, event that we are all collectively going into. I know that's not entirely true, but so many places are celebrating the holidays right now. My point is I want to invite you to set the intention to ditch the body talk. Okay. So whether it is about your own body or somebody else's body or engaging in a conversation about somebody's body who is not there, even if it's a celebrity's body, I want to invite you to set that intention for yourself to not engage in body talk going into this week, but really this time of year. And this is an intention that you can continue to reset for yourself and a really powerful one because here's the thing, body talk is so incredibly toxic for so many reasons. It really creates a lack of safety and trust with people in our lives, whether it's people that we're close with or just um, random connections, acquaintances, communities. If it's not your body, it's not your business. You never have the full story of what's truly going on with somebody else's body and vice versa. The other person does not have the full picture of what's going on with your body past and present, physically, mentally, emotionally. Our bodies are complex. They are private. They are sacred. And unfortunately, we 
We are living in a culture that has created a host of disordered boundaries around conversations that pertain to our bodies on so many levels. So this has become so normalized, but it does not have to be the reality moving forward. I myself have done a ton of work around setting boundaries for body talk in my own life, around my own body, around how conversations just are just brought up around other people's bodies. It's not been super fun, but it has been really powerful and it has deepened my relationships and connections in so many other meaningful ways. This is not going to be a training on boundary setting. This is really just like I've mentioned multiple times already, an invitation invitation to set that intention for yourself, to remove yourself from the conversation, to just actively choose to not participate to not bring up the conversation to start with and give yourself that space and that grace to just be present and enjoy so many other parts of these experiences and people that you are with and just how you are treating yourself throughout this time without all of the drama around how we're talking about our bodies. I'll probably do another conversation entirely on boundary setting with body image. If you're into it, send me a DM, let me know you are, I will for sure make it happen. But let's move into our guest that we have today because this is not a solo episode. Thank you for just being with me and setting this intention with me, but we have Ayana Bates on the show today, and this is really a an incredible conversation. Um, I want to give a trigger warning before we really get into this. We do talk about specific eating disorder behavior as well as suicidal ideation, um, mental health specifics. If you are in a place, as always, I invite you a place where you're not able to really sit in this conversation, if you feel like it would be more triggering for you, I really want to invite you to hit pause and take care of yourself, honor whatever gut feeling is coming up for you right now, whatever intuition around a heavier conversation like this, just respect that for yourself. And there is no shame. I respect the hell out of you for taking care of yourself in that way. Um, and I know that Ayana would, would feel the same way. She and I actually talked about that before we recorded this conversation. So we love you. We see you. If you want to hit pause, go ahead and do that now. If you're continuing to hang out with us, I can't wait for you to meet this incredible human being. Let me tell you a little bit about Ayana before we dive in. Ayana is a mental health advocate sharing resources and awareness of suicide prevention and mental illness, including eating disorders and depression. She is also certified in mental health first aid, trained to provide initial help to young people struggling with their mental health and substance use disorders. She is a national ambassador and the ambassador program manager for Project HEAL, hosting fundraisers and speaking events to raise awareness of eating disorders. Ayana is a 
NAMI, NYC ambassador and affiliate for America's greatest, or not greatest, excuse me, largest grassroots mental health organization, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. She manages a blog and is an author of the book, An Old Teen. Ayana is working towards her BA in psychology at CUNY Queens College and plans to become a licensed clinical social worker. So, I mean, Ayana is incredible. She's an incredible writer. That's how I got connected with her, actually. You may or may not know my involvement with Project Heal as well, too. We've had the CEO on this show, and I actually got connected with Ayana through that organization and was just so moved by some of the um, some of the things that I read of hers, some blog posts and whatnot. And I knew immediately that I had to have her on if she was willing to have a conversation like this. And she was. So we're talking a lot about myths around bipolar disorder and eating disorders. We also talk about how those two mental health conditions are intertwined sometimes, how to support people who are struggling with these mental health conditions, um, just facts that you might not be aware of with either of these things, and really just giving some context and some truth. And Ayana's lived experience with her own bipolar disorder, her experience navigating an eating disorder, and her advocacy for really changing the conversation and the stigma around these two things and so much more. I cannot wait for you to hear this. It's super empowering. It's really enlightening. Um, and Ayana is just like a game changer here to really do amazing things. And she already is. So thanks for hanging out with us. I love you. We will link everything in the show notes. And have a restful week, however you are choosing to spend it. I'll talk to you later. Ayana Bates, welcome to Body Truth. Thank you, Kayleen, for having me. We're so happy that you are here. Cannot wait to hear all about your personal story and what you are so deeply passionate about sharing today. Um, let's just jump right in. So the first question that we ask everyone is your first body awareness moment. So Ayana, what did that look like for you? That moment where you realized I'm in a body and this means something in the world that I'm living in. Just share your story and also how that moment impacted your relationship with your body and or food moving forward. That's such a great question. Um, I think for me, it has to be my first day of kindergarten, I just remember being really, really scared and uncomfortable. Uh, I definitely think I had undiagnosed like uh, social anxiety. Um, you know, definitely it's normal to be nervous for your first day, but I just felt like I was very hyper aware of everything and specifically my body. like the clothes that I was wearing um, and just feeling really uncomfortable in my skin and very hyper-focused on like what people are gonna think of me. Um, 
I just remember my dad walking with me into the building. I was wearing my favorite Barbie dress, but for some reason, like it didn't, something that normally made me feel comfortable like wearing my favorite dress or doing my hair my favorite way. I was just very unsure, like how people were going to perceive me you know, at five years old, it was just such a very weird, a foreign feeling. And throughout the whole day, I was crying. I really just wanted to go home. I didn't want to be in this space anymore. I kept having like this feeling that everybody was looking at me. And, you know, all the kids when we entered the kindergarten classroom, you know, didn't want to be there or they were afraid to be away from their parents and things like that. But, you know, normally when you get into the classroom, that's something you get over, you find your, your friend and, you know, you play with the toys and you start to feel okay. But for the entire day, I just could not shake this feeling that people were looking at me funny or that they didn't want to be my friend or that they thought my hair looked weird or they could see that my fingers looked weird or someone didn't like my Barbie dress. And, um, and I just remember really how that affected my relationship with food like that day. I didn't wanna eat lunch. I didn't wanna eat my snack. And as someone now who is in recovery for an eating disorder, and I had to do that work in treatment center, and, you know, think back to the time where you realize your relationship with food was disordered. And I really had to think back. And I think back to this first day in kindergarten where I was having uncomfortable emotions, feeling insecure in my body at five. And my response is to not eat. That was a coping mechanism for me. And I find that very interesting. I find it really interesting as well too. When you made that choice, I know it it was when you were five years old, but do you remember anything around that decision to not eat? Was that intentionally related to how you were feeling in your body? Were you able to kind of tie that together at the time or did you realize that later on? Definitely something I realized later on of what this was. Um, my eating disorder, I always say, is more like a self-harm. Um, it's something that I engage in when I want to feel in control. Mm. And so thinking back to that moment in the kindergarten classroom, being really uncomfortable in my body, feeling really insecure, and just having that out of control feeling, that was my response. You know, they put the snack in front of me, and I was having all of these anxious thoughts. And I just thought, well, I can decide like not to eat or how little I want to eat. And that was like me taking control mm-hmm. at that moment or numbing out, wanting to escape. So I didn't have the words to formulate that at that age, but I see those same patterns like when I was deep in my eating disorder as it showed up um, in my teenage years and young adulthood. And doing that work, I saw similar patterns at that young age. Mm-hmm. When did you realize you had an eating disorder? I realized I had an eating disorder um, at 17 years old. Um, when I was first engaging in these behaviors, 
I didn't right away acknowledge that it was an eating disorder. I just thought like, oh, I just have like an unhealthy relationship like with food or like disordered eating. But it was a full-blown eating disorder um, to the point where I was trying to figure out, like it was a point where like I wanted to keep using the behaviors that I was doing, but I also wanted to get help. I was like going back and forth with like my healthy mind and the eating disorder thoughts in my brain. Um, but I was looking up like what's an eating disorder um, and ways to treat an eating disorder. And I just remember when I was looking up this information, I didn't see anyone who looked like me um, as a black woman. All I saw was just white, thin woman. And when you type in eating disorders and like on the treatment center websites, um, even on like different, like NIDA, like different websites didn't really have anything about black people struggling with eating disorders. So I think that I was like, oh, okay, then if I don't really see any information, you know, related to me and, you know, my presentation as me as a human, like I didn't see anything related to my identity, then I didn't think I had one. And even too, um, now I was diagnosed with OSPED, forming known as eating disorder, not otherwise specified. Um, and when I was looking at the behaviors, all I saw was like anorexia or bulimia. So I didn't really, even like the criteria, like I wasn't um, severely underweight. There was a lot of behaviors that I just kept seeing popping up that didn't relate to me. So I didn't think I had an eating disorder. Mm. So it, it was confusing. Yeah, I, I can imagine. I can only imagine. And it's deeply problematic. I'm so glad that we're talking about this. There are so many things that I want to ask you around this. But before we move forward in the conversation, what, what were some of the signals that were guiding your intuition that this was more than just a disordered relationship with food? Because I'm hearing you say that you just kind of knew intuitively that something was not right, which was prompting you to start this research around what eating disorders were, but then also getting this feedback from the messaging that you were coming up with in your search that did not really reflect the person that you were. You didn't really see yourself in any of the search results. So what were some of the specific behaviors or not necessarily super specific, but just some of the things that were kind of allowing you to believe that it was, it needed to be paid attention to a little bit more than just a uh, problematic relationship with food. Yeah, definitely. I feel like at one point for me, I was struggling with depression. And so like I said, like it's, it felt like a self-harm for me because I was just trying to find a way to manage that or to numb out or to feel in control. I, I use my eating disorder for a lot of things. Um, and it just felt very self-destructive, the things that I was doing. Um, before, it was just skipping meals here and there. Like maybe I didn't get a chance to eat in the morning, whatever. Or I just didn't want to eat lunch. And it started out like that. So I didn't really think of it, anything of it. But as my depression got worse, my 
restricting of my food intake got worse. And it was very, it was harmful. You know, I wasn't sleeping, um, just very, very tired all the time. Just physically felt drained. And to the point where I, I wasn't feeling hungry anymore either. I lost my hunger cues. And I just didn't want to take care of myself anymore. Um, and also struggling with suicidal thoughts. I was like, wow, I went this many this many days without eating. Like, how long can I keep doing that for? And when I started having thoughts like that, like, you know, the healthy mind will come back in a little bit. Like, um, like those aren't like normal thoughts that people have. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something you need to look at. Like, that's not a normal thing to say. Like, I went this long without eating. Like, how long can I go for? So when I started having thoughts like that, and like getting really competitive with myself and tracking my calories and um, just engaging in those kinds of behaviors. I knew it was, it was getting to a point where it wasn't just like skipping meals here and there or, um, or like a diet go wrong or anything like that. Mm-hmm. It was very destructive and I was actively hurting myself, hoping that the longer that I went without eating, that I just wouldn't wake up the next morning. Like that was the goal as I was struggling like with suicidal thoughts and depression Mm. yeah it's so tough Uh, and I'm just I have the most tremendous amount of empathy for you at this point in in your story as well too Ayana what was your environment like at that time when when you were in high school and you were really starting to struggle what were your friends like did you have close relationships? Were you engaged in sports? Where were you kind of putting your attention outside of food or your body, if at all? Yeah, um, I had a really great, and despite everything, um, like high school environment um, and home life. Um, You know, I'm an older sibling of two and have a really close relationship with my parents, super supportive. Um, and in high school, I had great close-knit friends. Um, I was involved in different sports, track, uh, the fencing team. I was president of the writing center. So just I had a lot of things going on that I looked forward to. I loved writing. Um, and I loved being with my friends and hanging out after school. And, you know, and being 17, like looking forward to prom and, and, and things like that. I was just really involved in different activities with my friends and, and riding and fencing. Did anyone know that you were struggling? Did you confide in anyone? They did because I was the friend that was always so positive. I was always smiling. I was the one that people went to um, like with their problems. Everyone was always asking me for advice. Like I was the bubbly one. I was the one who always saw the bright side of things. So I was first struggling with suicidal thoughts and depression um, my freshman year of high school, but I still was able to like force that smile and, you know, try to be like that positive, energetic one out of my friends. But 
as I reached my senior year, 17, it just got really, really dark. Like, it was hard to smile. Um, I didn't want to be around my friends. I wasn't um, always going to the writing center anymore. Um, fencing, I wasn't really interested in that as much. It, you know, I was skipping class. Like, I loved school and I loved my classes. I was skipping class sometimes, or staying up really late. And I, it wasn't fun anymore. Um, my friends were just like, are you okay? Like, what's going on? Like, they didn't know how to handle it because yeah. I was the bubbly one. So now to, I was crying all the time. I had really bad crying spells. Um, always crying. Like, my spent my last senior year of, of school just, like, in tears all the time. And I couldn't explain it to people. Like, I didn't know it was depression at first. I just knew I was really, really sad. And I was feeling that way for four years. I just thought it was, you know, it was normal at that point. Um, so I didn't have the language to describe to my friends what I was going through. I just burst into tears and I couldn't explain it um, because there was nothing, um, I would say like traumatic or anything that happened um, to me that was like a catalyst for depression. It's just something that I was going through. Um, it, nothing brought me to that place, um, just a chemical imbalance in my brain. That's just how it was. Um, and it took its, it, you know, it got worse as I got older. So mm-hmm. yeah, they didn't know. I would talk to my friends. One of my friends knew I was really suicidal and she was trying to get me to eat as I was struggling with my eating disorder. And she was really, really supportive. I'm very thankful to this day for her. Um, she was the one who encouraged me to bring up these things to my parents because they didn't know like what I was going through in high school. Cause I was, you know, I had all the good grades, um, super outgoing and being the older sister too, like I was the example for my siblings um, and everyone looked to me for like that sense of everything was going great with her. So no one was really thinking I had a problem. Um, but when I was telling my friend that like, I don't want to be here anymore. Um, like, I don't think I can keep going. She was like, if you don't talk to your parents, like I'm going to say something. Um, that conversation didn't, <laughs> it didn't go the way that I wanted to. Um, I, my parents are better now, but like, in the beginning, they didn't understand. Um, and I was, I would, I loved writing. So I didn't really know how to put into words what I was going through. But when I would journal, like I would spill my guts. So I, I shared with um, my parents a journal entry that I wrote that kind of like encompassed all of the dark thoughts that I was having um, and the sadness I was feeling. And my not wanting to eat and they read it and they were just kind of like I don't get it like there's nothing for you to be sad about you know you have good grades you have friends you have a supportive family like I don't understand like what you're saying right now like there's nothing to be sad about so it was like super invalidating and you know at one point I kind of like had to beg for a therapist I was like I really need one like 
you know, my friend, she's concerned about me. And sometimes I'm concerned about me. Um, like, I think I need to talk to someone. And they kind of were just like, uh, I don't even know if that's really necessary. Like, there's nothing wrong with you. Like, why do you think you need to see someone? Um, they just didn't get it initially. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it kind of like, it was invalidating. And it took me a long time to realize that like, it's okay to ask for help. And like, there doesn't need to be a singular reason for why an eating disorder developed or why depression developed. Like sometimes this is a chemical imbalance in your brain. It's the mental illness, it's an illness and it doesn't have to come from a traumatic event or anything like that. Sometimes it just happens. Mm-hmm. And that's hard for people to understand, especially being that person who was always positive and, and always had things going for her and being that excited person and had all these activities going on, saying that I'm depressed and I don't want to be here anymore. People just didn't, the people closest to me didn't get that initially. Do you think that it had anything to do with the fact, with the fact of the lack of representation within mental health and eating disorders? Do you think that, that that's something that was kind of keeping your family from really understanding what you were going through? Yeah, I think, especially with the eating disorder, it's just super complicated. Um, and like I, at the time that I was struggling, I didn't know half of like why I was doing what I was doing. I didn't have the language for it. And I think that is the issue is there's not enough um education um and then also to like the stigma especially like in the black community that like therapy like there's something wrong with you if you want to go to therapy or like it's a sign of weakness um and no one placed that on me my family didn't you know make me feel like I was weak or anything like that for going to therapy but it's just like wasn't something you turned to like you just didn't get it and also to I think it was kind of like a fear response like oh my goodness like is it something wrong that I did like they took therapy as a sign of like we did something wrong like we failed somewhere Mm. when in reality like therapy it it has nothing to do with weakness or a sign of failure or like there's something wrong with you it's very 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 healthy to seek out a therapist and it actually makes you stronger for saying, hey, you know, I think I need might benefit some from additional help. That's mm-hmm. all. But at that time, it's for my family and just in black community in general, just like see yeah, therapy is just like a no-no. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting too talking about uh different communities, racial communities as well. And the generational gap as well too, because I know in my experience with my family, it was the same. And I come from a white family where it was like, Ooh, did we do something wrong because you need therapy? You know, like it just wasn't as widely accepted in my parents' generation. And it still really Mm -hmm. isn't, you know, and I'm so grateful that we can have conversations like this in 
this mental health movement with our generation to really destigmatize uh, reaching out and asking for support and normalize therapy and and coaching and support for all of these different um, all of these different areas. Ayana, what did that look like for you to finally get support after kind of going through these hoops and um, having these hard conversations? When did you actually start to get the support that you needed? Yeah, it it was amazing to be able, and I'm definitely very thankful recognizing my privilege and being able to access the care that I did because I needed a, a lot more than a weekly therapy session. I needed to, to go to treatment. Um, so it was, I'm going to say my early 20s. So the 20, I think I just turned 21 that I ended up checking myself into a treatment center. Um, cause people just didn't understand why I needed to go. Um, or they didn't think I needed to, or they thought I was like making a big deal out of nothing. Um, but I knew I needed to go because it was really disrupting a lot of areas in my life. Now I'm out of high school um, and I had started college, but um, I had to leave for financial reasons. So then I was just doing jobs here and there. And like my job performance, I, I had to quit because like I wasn't showing up in different areas of my life. I wasn't showing up for my, my family and my my loved ones. Um, I wasn't showing like being productive at work and it was just going really downhill. And I knew I needed to just like hit like the reset button. Like I needed to get some clarity and and get and seek help. So I checked myself into a treatment center. Um, It was the eating disorder treatment center. And initially I thought I was just going to go there for like in the evenings, maybe like three days out of the week. But when I was telling them my behaviors that I wasn't eating all day, and I've been doing that for a long period of time, they're like, you need more intensive treatment. You need day treatment. So I traveled to the city. It was the Renfrew Treatment Center. I traveled to Manhattan, Queens, every day from nine to three, five days out of the week, had my two meals there with them, was set up with a dietitian, um, a therapist participating in group therapy. And one of the biggest things too was getting the correct diagnosis. Um, oh. So I was diagnosed with, um, it was OSPES, the eating disorder not otherwise specified, and then bipolar 2 disorder, which was a huge, huge thing to get diagnosed with that because I initially thought it was just depression, you know, different therapists that I was seeing. So the medication that I was taking prior to treatment was not helping. It was actually making like the suicidal thoughts worse. Wow. So getting that diagnosis of bipolar two, while it was scary, it made a lot of sense and explained like a lot of the times people said I was super bubbly and like um like super positive all the time. Like those were hypomanic episodes sometimes that I I didn't know that that's what that was. Um so yeah I was able to treat like the suicidal thoughts, the, the bipolar two disorder, the depression, hypomania, and the eating disorder. So it really made it was life changing being mm. able to access that care. Did you? How did you digest that 
information once you received it, because I'm hearing a lot of empowerment in your story and a lot of validation and being able to name that. Was there ever a period where um, you had to kind of grieve these diagnoses that you were receiving or did you kind of approach it a different way where it was just like, thank you and let's get, get to work? I definitely was ready to get to work because I always felt like there was something wrong with me. And I just kept asking all the time. I'm like, why do I feel so sad? Why do I have all of these thoughts? Like I'm suicidal, but I don't actually want to die. Like, Mm -hmm. that's not me. That's not who I am. Where are these things coming from? Like, why do I think like this? Why is this happening to me? And I just, I just didn't understand. So to have someone say, well, having bipolar two disorder, these are the kind of thoughts that you have. These are the kind of symptoms that show up. Like that makes a lot of sense. You know, um, people thought that something traumatic had happened to me. Like my family, um, they thought that something caused the depression and, you know, my problem with food they were like something happened like and you didn't feel comfortable sharing like there was something else deeper going on like no it's it's just like it's the the illness it's mental illness they just didn't understand so I thought like sometimes I thought it was a fraud too because I didn't have like things were going so well in my life um you know I had a job and I was able to finish school and start college and I had a supportive family so I just did not understand why all of these things were happening to me, why I felt so depressed. So to have the diagnosis was, it just made a lot of sense. Um, and I was able to put a name to a lot of things that I was feeling. And um, I was able to connect the dots and also just get the proper care. Because now I, I knew that I didn't need just a general therapist. I needed eating disorder uh, therapist, someone who specializes in eating disorders. Um, I didn't just need to be on antidepressants. I needed to be on um, antipsychotics because I have bipolar 2 disorder. So it really changed the game. And once I got on the right medication, once I had the right treatment team, I felt so much better and it just improved my care and improved my quality of life. So in a way, I'm very, very thankful that I got those diagnoses um, and I just, it just validated. I just, I was really seeking that validation because mm. I felt like I was doing something wrong and to know like, oh, that's just, that's just a symptom of this illness. It's, it's not me. Eating disorder, it's not me. Bipolar 2, depression, that's not me. That's the illness and I, I need to manage it. How can I manage it? And having that treatment team in place re- really helped. Amazing. It's, this is so empowering that you showed up for yourself in this way when nobody else was really encouraging you to do it. You just went for it and followed your gut instinct that you needed this type of support. It really is remarkable. So after getting this diagnosis and getting on the proper medication, which is life-changing in itself, but you also acknowledge the treatment team that you were working with, how long was this period? And also what are some of the highlights during this period too? Like what were some of those breakthrough moments, whether it was 
like you mentioned, connecting the dots, were there any really important dots that got connected or any tools that you learned that were just life-changing or anything that just really stands out for you during this treatment phase of your recovery? Yeah, so I was in the day treatment facility for three months and then I was eventually able to go on to an individual therapist that specialized in eating disorder and specialized in bipolar disorder. Um, so having that team in place, it was very, very helpful. And I was participating in that with the, the treatment center and then that individual therapist for about three years um, altogether. And had a lot of breakthroughs. Like I understood my relationship with food more um and I was able to understand the triggers I went along with it um and really understanding that eating disorders look different for everybody because I assumed and also just with the information that I had going on that I had as I was doing my own research that I didn't have any disorder because I wasn't engaging in X, Y, and Z, or, you know, I wasn't severely underweight. But when I went to treatment and was really doing the work and even everyone who was there, like there were people from all ages, all backgrounds, um, different shapes and sizes, and we're all struggling with the same thing. Um, and even though it showed up differently, it, it really showed me that anyone can struggle with this disease like eating disorders do not discriminate mental illness does not discriminate and while it sucks that a lot all of us were there for such terrible reasons um it was also hopeful in a way to know that there are other people out there who are struggling similarly and that there is help available um so it was empowering and i was just able to learn that I am much stronger than I gave myself credit for. Um, the, the treatment that I was undergoing and working with my therapist, I was able to, you know, learn how to advocate for myself and learning how to say no. Mm-hmm. Um, I was always the person who was trying to please everyone um, and say yes to everything. And, you know, a lot of people would take advantage of my kindness and it was also just very detrimental to my mental health, always trying to please other people, um, like at the expense of, of my health and wellness. So really, I found my voice through treatment and really started to um, establish values for myself. Like, what do you want to do with your life? What does life look like beyond your eating disorder? And it's like, I want to be independent. Um, I want to have my own voice. Um, I want to go into psychology and study that and eventually become a therapist myself. And so once I started having clear goals and a clear sense of direction and really starting to love myself again and accept myself, things started to turn around for me in such beautiful ways. And I'm in such a better place than I was uh, five, six years ago. Mm. That's amazing. I'm so happy for you. 
Um, let's talk about bipolar disorder a little bit more. Is that cool? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. We've actually never had a conversation like this on the podcast before. So you still struggle with this, correct? I mean, you, you've gone through treatment, you're on medication now, but are you still classified as somebody who has bipolar disorder? Yeah, um, I definitely don't want to speak for everybody, but for me, I definitely believe that this is something, and I've heard other people with bipolar disorder say the same sentiment, that it's something that you live with. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an ongoing thing, um, and you just manage it. Uh, you know, if you are able to and to connect to the, the treatment team that you need or getting um, access to care. And I know that's so hard Not everyone has uh, access to therapy and psychiatrists. Um, there are free resources, um, but it's not just like snappy fingers and you can get connected. But I, I was fortunate enough to get connected to the care that I needed. And so I, it's still an illness that I live with, but it does not control my life. Um, and just keeping up with the medication and keeping up with therapy I'm able to have wonderful quality of life. If I wasn't on the medication or, you know, taking care of myself in the way that I am, then it would just be so much worse. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's definitely something that I still, I wouldn't say I struggle with, but it is, it's something that I do live with and I'm aware of it and I'm aware of any triggers or things that come up. Um, for me, it's bipolar 2 disorder. So um, I sometimes will have hypomanic episodes, um, and hypomania is kind of like a low grade mania, um, where I might stay up really, really late. Um, I'm super talkative. Um, like I feel like I can do anything that I might get involved in like a bunch of different projects and take on a bunch of different things. I'm very hyperactive. And so, I know that when that's happening, like, okay, I need to up the self-care. I need to make sure I check in with my psychiatrist. I really need to be on top of my sleep schedule. Um, and then that normally leads into um, like depressive episodes. But because I'm keeping up with therapy and medication, um, it does not, I'm very functional. It's, it's not, you know, keeping me down the depression um so just really working through that with my therapist and just taking care of myself and just mm-hmm. watching out for any of the signs if, if things are starting to feel like it's becoming unmanageable that's when I continue to consult my team when when does that happen when does it feel unmanageable for you what are some of the symptoms that you tune into yeah so for me Right now, I'm currently a college student, and I'm actually looking into, like, grad applications and things. So for me, it shows up with stress. Stress is a huge trigger, Um, and that's something I'm still working with. I'm not the best at handling stress, even with all of the therapy that I've, you know, experienced and the tools that I've had. It's still just something that I'm, I'm just not great at definitely need to be better but normally when I get really really overwhelmed with stress and that's normally during like midterms or final weeks or anything like that that's normally what triggers um those kind of episodes like hypermanic episodes 
um, where I'm like, I'm just staying up all night or, you know, I'm taking on different projects and things like that. Um, and that then triggers the depression. So I definitely try my best to not let the stress turn into something like that. Um, and that's just like taking more breaks, um, saying no to things um, and engaging in activities that are fun and are not just centered around school and work. But that's something I'm still working on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, we're constantly a work in progress, right? Never done. Mm-hmm. Never done. Which is so beautiful when we can just surrender to that, right? When we don't have to be fixed, when we can just keep evolving and give ourselves that really lovely permission to do that um, and to reach out for support. I mean, I, I'm certainly speaking for myself here. I really am echoing so much of your story, though. And it, it, I'm so glad we're talking about bipolar disorder because, first of all, you know, and we talked about this a lot on the podcast before, there is a high correlation with mental health illness and disorders and eating disorders. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also think there is a severe lack of education around bipolar disorder and a heavy dose of stigma in our culture because of that lack of education and representation as well too. So from your experience where is society getting it wrong? What, what do more people need to understand about bipolar disorder first? And then we'll go into eating disorders. Yeah, I think I definitely agree with you. There's a lot of stigma, um, especially I'm really not happy with, you know, terms like, oh, that person's so bipolar, you know, mm-hmm. when they're not actually diagnosed with anything or, you know, they're acting crazy like they're schizophrenic stuff like that when you when we normalize sayings like that um with people who actually have lived experience with such active disorders and bipolar disorder it does a disservice and the people who actually are living that experience are now they are labeled as crazy um and also too that you can't manage it you know like once you're diagnosed with that like that's all you are and you're not able to have a job and have friends and you know get a degree and like be successful and thriving um people just are just think that they're crazy and then think they're incapable of doing anything so that's very hard and disheartening and I think once we just normalize that you that therapy is okay like medication is wonderful for people you know trying to find the right dosage and right medication that works for you but there's nothing wrong with therapy there's nothing wrong with medication and there's something wrong if you have a diagnosis of bipolar disorder this means something's wrong with you doesn't mean that you're broken and it definitely doesn't mean that you are crazy um so if we could stop using those words so loosely Um, and putting those labels on people, I think it would really encourage others to get the proper treatment that they deserve um, and create an environment of support. Because I feel like when you have those stigmas out there like that and we're really downplaying um, 
illnesses by saying things like, oh, they're so bipolar, things like that. It, it discourages people from wanting to seek help and they don't feel safe to do so. So we can create an environment of acceptance and normalizing mental illness like any other um, health struggle um, and not making it sound like it's just this outrageous thing to have. It's normal to be diagnosed with bipolar disorder and it doesn't mean that anything's wrong with you. So just normalizing that. Mm, I love that. I completely agree with everything that you just shared around that. I also want to just plug in that it's not your responsibility, your meaning everybody who's listening and you and mine, it's not our responsibility Mm -hmm. to self-diagnose, right? So if, if you're listening to this thinking, oh my gosh, how do I know if I need help or not? How this might be me. That's enough. Someone else, the, the right support team, the right therapist, the right psychiatrist is, they are the ones responsible for uh, guiding you in the right direction for support and diagnosing accurately, would you say? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think there is a culture of um, self-diagnosing, which is, I understand maybe if you don't have immediate access to uh, therapy or anything like that, that, you might feel compelled to do that, but it does yourself a disservice when you do that because you're not getting the the proper care that you need or there's something lacking in that treatment when you self-diagnose so it's just so much better to reach out to a professional so you can get so you can get the care that you deserve um and taking that burden off of yourself that definitely felt that way at one point when I was in my search for like, what's, what's going on with me? I was the one self-diagnosing and I thought I had so many other different things before I finally arrived at a treatment professional. They're like, no, this is actually what you're going through. And I was able to get connected to the right support. But with the self-diagnosing and relying on Google doctor, it's mm-hmm. just not, it's not helpful. And it just prolonged my suffering and struggles because I wasn't looking in the right places. So talking to a professional, there are resources out there for those who, um, you know, maybe don't have insurance or nonprofits. Um, And if you're a student, the most college campuses have the mental health center, high school campuses, you have your counselors. So just reaching out to someone so you can make sure you get connected to a professional. Mm-hmm. This is where it gets really tangly, in my opinion. I know certainly in this community, it, and it sounds um, it sounds like it might have been that way in your story. I know certainly it was for me, where it's surrendering to the identity of being able to fix it all and do it all and figure it all out and being the go-to person for advice and the one who kind of has all of the quote-unquote answers and just letting go of that identity in service of getting the support that you need, like lowering that bar for yourself and just realizing how powerful it is when you do reach out and ask for help and support. And there, there's so much to, um, there's so much to unpack with that 
frustration, that difficulty in asking for support and why that's coming up. So if, if that's where you're at too, that's a good indication that if you don't want to ask for support, you probably need to ask for support, right? There's something Absolutely. else to look at there. I know it was like that for me. Yeah, definitely. It, it's, it's very, it's disarming when you have to be like, I need help. Like saying those words out loud can just feel like, it, it doesn't always feel good. But once you get the help, oh my goodness, it just, it just makes things so much easier than just struggling in silence and just that stubbornness of not wanting to ask for help or like worrying about how it's going to come off because it, it just, it does yourself a disservice. So just lay down the armor and ask for the help that you so, so deserve. Mm. Um, stigma or myths about eating disorders, what have you found to be the most true around this? What are you the most pissed off with? What do we need to know in our culture around these two things? Yeah, with, with eating disorders, I think, and I think we're coming around to it now that um, that it doesn't discriminate and that anyone of any size uh, and shape or background can struggle with eating disorder. But I still see this like on social media and like TikTok, which I have love-hate relationship with, just like perpetuating that eating disorders is a thin white issue. And then also anorexia is like the only eating disorder that exists. But there are so many different types of eating disorders and there's every, it looks different for everybody. Um, and to me, it's like the bottom line is, is if your relationship with food is disruptive, if your thoughts are preoccupied with food, whether it's restricting or it's binging or you have an unhealthy relationship with exercise and your body, if those kinds of thoughts are preoccupying your mind all day, every day, then it's something you need to look into and talk to professionals. Um, it doesn't always have to be uh, anorexia. You do not have to be a certain weight to have an eating disorder. I feel like when people are getting turned away, like from a doctor who's like, well, you don't look sick, then someone who's struggling with eating disorder, their mind is like, well, okay, well, I'm not sick enough, then I, I need to keep going with it. I don't know why we're waiting for people to be severely sick to get the treatment that they need. And that's not on the individual, that is on society that's mm -hmm. perpetuating the stereotypes of thin white anorexia own eating disorder out there and then also doctors too the primary cares that are turning people away or invalidating people's experiences to the point where they're not reaching out for help or they are further hurting themselves so they can meet this very very like the diagnostic criteria of DSM for eating disorder, it, that's not the be all end all for people who are struggling. It shows up differently. So really just being open to people's experience. If someone is coming to you saying, I have, uh, have very preoccupied thoughts 
about food and my body and have unhealthy relationship, that's something that needs to be explored, whether it's disordered eating or an actual, requires an actual diagnosis of an eating disorder. We cannot dismiss those uh, issues that people are bringing attention to. Yeah, there is such a fine line in the diagnosis these days too, just because diet culture is so rampant and we've just normalized this preoccupation with food. And so when it comes down to like a bare bones diagnosis for an eating disorders, I've often found um, it, it's it's complicated sometimes to actually make mm-hmm. that distinction because it has become so normal which is incredibly problematic and frustrating and something that we need to do better at as a society through, you know, just our own work and education and just creating safe spaces for people to feel like they can show up and ask these tough questions. So I hear you. Um, What was the biggest struggle in your recovery? Like when you look back and you think about, just your time. And I know that you consider yourself still in recovery today, right? Yeah, I do. I know I, I go back and forth of like fully recovered, full recovery or, or recovered. Um, everyone has different definitions. Sure. To me, I think in this moment, I consider, I'm definitely am not actively struggling um, or engaging in any behaviors and I have a healthier relationship with food and so to me I still believe though in, in my personal experience that I'll always be in recovery because life is always changing um, my circumstances are always changing um, and just like my self-development there's always going to be something that I'm learning about myself or new, be- new behaviors or uh, things that pop up that I still actively explore and work through with therapy. So I always feel like I will always be in recovery. Um, I'm not actively struggling. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, that's how I make that, I have to make that distinction for myself. So this is so interesting. And I, I love everyone who has been in recovery or is in recovery. I, I, I hear you. Everyone has a different interpretation of this. And I love asking this question and finding out where everybody's at with this. But what I think is so fascinating is what you just said about you're still exploring and you're still discovering things about yourself. And so defining yourself kind of as that in recovery, um, just kind of that, that label that you feel comfortable with. And I always think about, wow, I feel like that's every single person in life. If you're kind of woke to personal development and, and growing and evolving and all these things, right. I just kind of have to laugh. Um, when I think about this for myself too, because in, when we think about it that way, we're all in recovery from something like every single human who is continuing to live life and be faced with the changes that they're going through on a daily basis, whether that's physical, mental, or emotional and environmental and all of the other things as well too. But, um, I think that I've found so much peace and just learning to surrender to that because for a while I was just like, Oh my God, like this is, this feels overwhelming. Just that label of being in recovery and never being done when everyone around me is telling me to fix it, you know, like the, the culture that we're in is saying, 
when it when are you going to be good enough like when is it going to be fixed when is it going to be over when is the problem going to be solved rather than just laying down my guard and saying can I give myself permission to just always be evolving and growing and learning and exploring and elevating in my relationship with myself yes yes I love that there is there are so many things that I want to (laughs) keep asking you about but I feel like if I keep asking you it's going to go into a completely different conversation it's going to be an hour or two hours long um what are some of the biggest takeaways that you can leave us with today for somebody who is actively struggling right now? What would you say to them? What are some, besides just reaching out and asking for support, what are some tools that you might be able to offer somebody that have really helped you? Mm, So for me, I think and I, I know people say this all the time, like, I don't want to, but journaling is so wonderful. Um, I, that's been with me since I was deeply, deeply in my struggles and then through the therapy process. And now as I found the peace with my body and my relationship with food, continuing to journal and checking in with myself, that keeps me grounded and that helps me along my recovery journey and just like this journey of life in general mm. keeping a journal and just finding ways to check in so if you're not if you're not a big writer then finding something to do where you can check in with yourself so definitely therapy if you can access it um there are free support groups and then also if it's running if it's just taking time to listen to music if it's going to a coffee shop if it's meeting up with a friend something where you can just Netflix if you just want to watch Netflix like taking time for yourself checking in with yourself being in tune with yourself yoga anything where you can stop and just be with yourself because that's when you can learn you know what what's happening with you um are you feeling good is there are you feeling upset um do you need to check in with somebody um, doing that self-exploration, that, that checking in with yourself um, as much as possible is a real asset to your recovery journey um, and really that stepping stone to getting the care that you need and deserve. Mm, love. Um, Ayana, final question that just popped into my mind. How can people advocate for themselves better? Um, I'm, I'm sure that there will be many people listening to this conversation who are thinking I have a family like that or a group of friends like that or a community who just won't understand and are probably feeling really alone right now. So coming out of that, you know, a similar experience for yourself, how would you empower somebody to just get the help that they need or take the next step? when they feel like they're on their own. Yeah, you, you there is a there is your communities out there. Um, your maybe your immediate family or friend or loved one is just not getting it, but there is someone out there who does. There is 
your community. I definitely had to find that for myself. Um, and so walking into like support groups or even just like the mental health community online is also very empowering, like Instagram. So just find, you will find your people um, it, and it, it's out there. So really just once, if you know for yourself that you're struggling and you feel like you can't talk to the people around you, seeking out that community because those resources and those tools are out there. They might not be in your immediate circle, but they do exist. So I really do encourage you to find your people, find that support team, and you will be welcomed in the space that you are seeking, whether it's the eating disorder treatment center or um, if you're struggling with depression, struggling with anxiety, there are resources, support groups, and community out there for you to connect to. Yeah. I know sometimes I still personally, I don't always talk to my family members about my eating disorder because they just don't get it. And at this point, I feel like it's my job to educate them on it. Mm-hmm. So I have my own community and support group that I attend um, and other people who are like-minded and other resources that I can turn to if I feel like I need to dive deeper into like having a bad day, having body bad body image or any urges or anything like that. I have a community that I can turn to. Unfortunately, it's not my immediate people. Um, it, it's just, it's just not clicking, but that community exists out there. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I'm so glad that you said that. Okay. Final, final question. I promise. How do you navigate a bad body image day? Ooh, it's really just giving into it honestly I felt like I had to keep like forcing myself I'm like just accept your body the way it is like like you know you're trying so hard to combat those thoughts and you're fighting with yourself but for me I just have to like just sit with it I'm like okay like I'm feeling uncomfortable with my body right now these feelings suck but I'm doing great i my body is helping me walk today um it helped me get out of bed this morning um it helped me brush my teeth um I was able to have a good meal and I'm fine and I'm safe right now these feelings suck and I don't feel comfortable but I'm okay and just really just leaning in to be uncomfortable and as horrible as that sounds it's like the only way out is through so really just leaning into it and just being gentle with yourself you know Take yourself out. If you're struggling bad body image day, like that's the time where I sit with thoughts, but I also just do something fun for myself or up the self-care. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's that delicate dance between just being in the suck and that healthy distraction when it's needed to not have to stay in the suck all day long too. Exactly. Mm, beautiful. I love this conversation so much. I absolutely love the work that you're doing in the world. And you're just such a talented writer and speaker. And I'm so grateful that we were able to spend this time together and you were able to share your truth. Thank you so much. Where can everybody find you and get plugged into your work, hang out with you, all the things? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. 
Um, right now, I am on Instagram at you deserve uh, recovery. So you underscore deserve underscore recovery. Um, that's where I run my blog and I have mental health resources out there. And I share a little bit of my story and mental health tips and tricks and all the good stuff. Also on Twitter at at worth underscore recovery. And currently have a book out and old team have support um, for young people who are struggling with mental health or anxiety or low self-esteem. That's on Amazon. Currently a Project Hill ambassador, program manager, wonderful nonprofit that I love. They're helping people who are struggling with eating disorders get access to life-saving treatment um, with providing treatment grants and other resources to get people to help them overcome those barriers to treatment. So really involved with the mental health community and just super excited. Mm, I'm excited for you. I'm so fired up by all the work that you're doing and we will be sure to link everything that you just mentioned in the show notes so that it's easy for everybody to access. Thank you so much for your time and your truth today. I really, really appreciate you. Thank you. That's our show. Thank you for spending time with us today. Our show producer is Stephanie Olea. Shayla Anderson is our community manager. For more information around healing your own relationship with food and body image, click the show notes and you'll find direct links to our guests plus resources and more. If this conversation resonated with you, please leave a review and share it with a friend so that we can continue to heal and empower these important topics around our relationship with food and body. Sending you so much love, confidence, and strength. I'll see you next week for another episode. 